Well, if you've got your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, hope you brought your Bible with you. Um, If not, you've got some Bibles in front of you in the pew back. But take those Bibles and turn to John chapter chapter 19. John 19. Dr. Steve Gaines is the pastor of the historic Bellevue Baptist Church over in Memphis, Tennessee. A couple of years ago, he wrote an article in, uh, in which he told the story of visiting a man in the hospital who was near death. And here's what... Dr. Gaines says in his article, he says, Jim was on the brink of eternity. He knew he was going to heaven, but he was still afraid. He said, Pastor, I know I'm saved. I know that when I die, I'll go to heaven, but I'm afraid. I've never died before. I'm afraid of what death will be like. Can you help me? We talked about what happens when a Christian dies. We talked about how his spirit and soul would soon leave his body and go directly to God's presence in heaven. Then the Lord gave me a thought to share with Jim that I'd never shared before. I said, Jim, when I was young, I was afraid of the dark, especially any dark area in our house. I remember coming home at night with my family. My father knew about my fear of darkness. So every time we came home, my dad would unlock and open the door, go inside and turn the light on. Then he'd turn around and say, come on in, Steve, everything's fine. I remember walking into our house in total peace because I knew that I could trust my father to take care of me. I didn't have to be afraid. He continues, then I said, Jim, when Jesus came to this earth, he lived a sinless life so he could die for our sins. He gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for God's children, and then he was buried. But three days later, Jesus walked out of that grave with the keys to death, hell, and the grave itself in his hand. Jim, Jesus unlocked the door of eternity, went into the grave, and turned the lights on for you. Now he's saying, Jim, come on in. Everything is fine. By this time, Jim and I were both crying. In fact, I'm fighting back tears as I write this article. Jim said, Pastor, I get it. I can see Jesus opening the door for me. He's turning the light on for me. He's saying, come on in, Jim. Everything is fine. Jesus is the light of the world. He's turned on the light in my grave. I can die without fear. Thank you, Pastor, for helping me. Folks, today as we approach God's Word, we're going to take a few moments and we're going to pull back the curtain on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And my prayer is that all of us are going to be able to leave this morning with the same mindset and the same attitude that Jim had. And it's not that we're all going to die soon. We're going to die someday. But there is coming a day in which we will die. And the sooner that we understand the significance of Jesus' death and the significance of his resurrection, then the better off we're going to be. So we're going to approach this time this morning by looking at John chapter 19. And a little bit later, we're going to be in John chapter 20. You're in John chapter 19. Let's read verses 1 through 16 together. All right, John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. 
for I, found, I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, then you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Folks, what we see in these verses is the single greatest injustice in the history of mankind. But what we're going to find as we look at this is that this injustice occurred at the consent and the will of God. And we understand that it happened for God's glory and ultimately for our good. Now, we've been on a journey this whole year um, to, to know and to better understand God's plan for the world. What has he done in the, in the past, right? What is, he, what is he doing right now? And what is he going to do in the future? And how does our story fit into God's story? How does our individual story fit into God's overall big picture story? We started with creation at the beginning of the year. We, we worked through the high points of what God has done in the past, all throughout the Old Testament. We worked through uh, last several weeks, last six weeks or so, um, trying to understand who Jesus is by looking at what Jesus had to say about himself through the I am statements. We get to the portion now where we see Jesus' death and his resurrection, then we're going to continue from this point on through the church age, all the way up through Revelation at the end of the year. We know from God's story, the looking at it so far, that sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve. Sin is anything that deflects glory and deflects praise from God to any other human being or any other being at all. So, so sin is anything that takes the focus off of God and puts it on man. Mankind is born into a sin-cursed world. And by default, they are themselves sinners. The penalty for sin is death. That's what we find in, specifically in the book of Romans. We find that. Something or someone has to die to pay the price of sin. Now, in the Old Testament, sin is atoned for uh, through the death of an animal. The problem was that that atonement um, was temporary. The book of Hebrews tells us even that the sin, even though um, it was being atoned for by the blood of an animal, it couldn't be completely taken away. The sin could only be covered up. Something needed to take place in order to take sin away completely. But God's plan all along is to send His Son to earth to die once and for all for the people's sin. So with the death of Jesus, who is the perfect, sinless Lamb, there would then come the capacity for the guilt of those sins to be taken away completely. We know that when we approach God with a heart that is genuinely repentant, that He's going to be faithful to forgive us of our sins. 
That's something the psalmist knew about God. In Psalm 103, verse 12, we read this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 1 John 1, 9. We know this verse. You probably learned it when you were in Sunday school years ago. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really even before he begins his ministry. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, and he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew that Jesus is the one that God has sent to take away the sin of the world, to take away my sin, to take away your sin. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that God shows his love for mankind in that even while we were alienated and separated from God, that God sent Jesus to earth to die for us. Folks, there is nothing in this world that can compare to God's plan. Even, get this, even when that plan includes the death of his son. We're going to talk about the death of his son this morning. The fact that that he, that God, would put together this plan for our redemption is honestly nothing short of phenomenal. A few moments ago, we, um, we read a portion of the story that's leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. If you continue reading, you're going to see that that plan comes at a great cost. It comes at the cost of Jesus himself, the life of the Son of God, the perfect Son of God. You look at that story and you think, man, this is a confusing, frustrating story. Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he feels like he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He wrestles through what to do, but in the end, you can tell it's almost like he goes against his gut feeling, and he, he actually does command the crucifixion of Jesus. And when you continue reading, you see that Jesus is taken away and he is crucified. Now listen, there's a ton of things that we could talk about with the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, we could talk about in detail the injustice of all of it. We can talk in detail about the hypocrisy of these high priests, right? These are supposed to be the religious leaders, but yet when the Messiah, the one they've been looking for all along, is right in front of them, they completely miss that fact, right? We could talk about uh, what Pilate might have been thinking and and, and feeling, how he's wrestling with this. We could probably talk about the physical details of of Jesus' death and, and all of the physiological issues and the details that would have been going on there with his death. We could go through each and every event leading up to and including Jesus' death, right? There's a whole lot we could talk about. But those are all speaking to the facts of Jesus' death, the what of his death. Folks, what I would rather do for just a few moments this morning is talk about the why behind Jesus' death. Help us grasp this why behind his death. And I fully believe that when we grasp this, when we see these are the reasons, this is the reason that Jesus came to die, that it's going to grip us. It honestly should grip us and forever change us. So let's talk for a few moments about the why behind the event. John Piper has written a fantastic little book. It's entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And I'm certainly not going to go through all 50 of those reasons that that John Piper found, but I do want to highlight 10 of those, okay? If you want to find the other 40, go buy the book. You can get it for $4 and some cent on Kindle, or you can buy it on Amazon for 12 bucks, okay? But let's let's talk for a few moments here about why Jesus came to die. First of all, Jesus came to die to reconcile us to God. 
to reconcile us to God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now I'm going to pause here for just a minute, and I'm not sure why, but it's super hot in here today. And I hope you're not offended, but I'm going to take my jacket off. And we're going to talk here for a few moments, okay? Um, so first of all, we see that Jesus had to come to die to reconcile us to God. You see the verse there, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Folks, God took the steps that we could not take in order for us to be reconciled to Him by sending Jesus. I want you to think about a reconciliation here for just a moment. Any kind of earthly reconciliation. Reconciliation takes place when two parties or two individuals are moving apart from each other, right? They're moving apart from each other. But for a reconciliation to take place, one of those parties has to take the initiative to begin moving towards the other. That's what God did in sending Jesus. But then there's something else that has to take place on our end. In order for true reconciliation to take place, we are going to move also to God. That is when reconciliation takes place. But folks, it is, it is nothing short of incredible that God initiates that reconciliation. Folks, he took those initiative, initiating steps. But what an opportunity we have to also pursue him. We repent of our sin and in faith we turn to him. We understand he is our all-satisfying, all-powerful, all-competent God who is going to be faithful to carry us through all the way until the day that we reach heaven. So first of all, Jesus had to come to die to reconcile us to God. Next, Jesus came to die to absorb the wrath of God, to absorb the wrath of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You continue reading Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, and are justified, we are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Folks, we were righteously born under the wrath of God. Because of our sin, that wrath should be poured out on us as humans. It should be. But Jesus absorbed God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says, this is love. Right? The, the, not that we have loved God, but what that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That God sends Jesus, sends Jesus to absorb his wrath on our behalf. Number three, Jesus had to die to make us holy, blameless, and perfect. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So one offering, he perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. You say, well, what's the significance of that? If you go back at the Old Testament and you see every single year, sacrifices had to be made on behalf of the sins of people, right? To, to cover up the sins of the people. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus came and offered that sacrifice one time. He was that sacrifice for that one time for us. 
who are being sanctified, who are being made more like Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, to present you blameless and above reproach before God. In other words, there is nobody that can look at you and say, that person doesn't deserve to be in heaven. No, Jesus says, I've taken care of that myself. I present you above reproach, holy and blameless before God. Next, Jesus had to die to heal from moral and physical sickness. Isaiah 53, 5. Pastor Nate quoted this earlier, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Let's stop there for a second. In this verse, you're going to see a couple of opportunities, not opportunities, but examples of where we are morally sick. Transgressions is talking about that. You continue on, you see, he was crushed for our iniquity. Moral sickness. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I love Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. This is incredible when you really stop and think about it. That evening... This is during the life of Jesus. That evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Folks, the most important healing for a human being is in the area of their soul. But listen, Jesus is able to heal not just the soul, but the body as well. And that further validates his supremacy I love the stories in the gospel about how people bring their sick family members and they bring their sick friends to Jesus to be healed. That shows us the heart that Jesus has for restoring mankind to their created state of perfection. Complete physical restoration is not going to take place until we receive our glorified bodies in heaven. But Jesus' ability to heal on this earth shows us his ability to give us ultimate healing one day in heaven. Next, Jesus had to die to enable us to live for Christ and not for ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, folks, have you ever tried to make all of life work on your own? Yeah, all of us have at some point. And it's exhausting, isn't it? You look at it and you think, man, this is futile just to, to, to make, it, make it all work all the time. Now, there's a certain level that, yeah, we can make it work. There's a resiliency about human beings that is phenomenal. But have you ever seen the difference between a person who is working so hard to make it work on their own and a person who is relying on the power of Jesus Christ to lead their life? You ever seen the difference? Oh, it's a big difference. How much more freeing is it for us to live for Christ through his power than for us to live by whatever feeble power we've got? Jesus' death enables us to live for Christ and not for ourselves. I love this next one. Jesus died to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and, na- and language and people and nation. Folks, the gospel is not bound to any one group of people ever. It is available for any person, no matter, their, no matter their nationality, no matter their language, no matter the color of their skin. Jesus died for all. His, to- his atonement is not limited in any way. Jesus died for all. Next, Jesus died to give marriage its deepest meanings. Jesus died to give marriage its deepest meaning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Hey, listen, let me ask you a question. How did Christ love the church? Died for it, right. He gave up everything for the church. So what the Apostle Paul is teaching here to the Ephesian church is husbands, love your wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. And then wives, in response to that, husbands, you initiate it. Wives, in response to that, you love your husbands based out of the overflow that you see there from him. You hear this verse read oftentimes at, at, at weddings, and um, it's, a, it's a special verse. It truly does give marriage a deep meaning. John Piper, in his book, he, he, he mentions this. He says, husbands are not Christ, all but they're called to be like him. This kind of love is possible because Christ died for both husband and wife. Their sins are forgiven. Neither needs to make the other suffer for sins. Christ has borne that suffering. Now, as two sinful and forgiven people, we can return good for evil. Folks, there are some of you who are here today and, and, and you have your spouse maybe sitting next to you or maybe your spouse isn't, isn't even here with you. But as you look at that person, you're thinking, you're dwelling on, you're remembering the sin of that person from maybe sometime in the past. But why? That person's sin has been forgiven. If they're a believer, that person's sin has been forgiven by Jesus once and for all. The same grace that God offers to me is the same grace that he offers to my spouse. Folks, when you truly understand the gospel and understand what Jesus did on the cross in dying for everyone, not just you, but for everyone, then it will radically impact the way you look at other people, even your spouse. I can love my spouse, and I can appreciate my spouse, and we can live together in harmony because we are both forgiven, not perfect, but forgiven people. I love that. Next, Jesus died to give us confident access to the holiest place. Confident access to the holiest place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Folks, right now at the right hand of God the Father is seated Jesus Christ. He is sitting there making intercession for me and for you as believers. That means that he's reminding the Father that he paid the price for our sins and that our guilt is taken care of through the shedding of his blood. Because of that, 
We can approach the throne of God with confidence, not because of a holiness that we have somehow earned for ourselves, because honestly, there is no good deeds that we could do enough to earn that kind of holiness. But we can approach the throne of God because of the imputed righteousness that is on our account through the work of Jesus. Jesus says, I have taken care of that person's sin. Now he is free, he, she is free to come before you, God the Father, in purity and holiness. Next, we see Jesus died to give eternal life to everyone who believes on him. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right, it's a verse that we all know. In fact, this is, a, this is the, the most used idea um, when we think about Jesus dying. Why did Jesus die? Well, most of the time we think about to give us eternal life, right? Folks, we cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough, that we were created to be eternal beings, we were created eternal beings. We are going to spend eternity in heaven or we're going to spend eternity in hell with life, eternal life, or eternal death. All of us have a choice to make. Am I going to embrace the fact that Jesus truly did pay the price for my sin, and repent of my sin and ask for forgiveness of it, or am I not? One leads to eternal life, the other leads to eternal death. That's all of us. Jesus paid, or Jesus died to give eternal life to everyone who believes. And I love the first part of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. He loves you. He loves me. There is nothing like our God and the love that he has for us, that he would make a way for us this way. Then here's the last reason, the last purpose in Jesus' death that I want to point out. To show that the worst evil is meant by God for good. The worst evil is meant by God for good. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, there are Christians gathered together and they're praying. This is not long after Jesus has died and resurrected and then ascended back to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come on the believers at this point. And here's their prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed... Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These Christians are praying and they affirm that a great evil occurred in the death of Jesus. However, they also acknowledge that this evil occurred at the permission and even the will of God. You know, sometimes we'll talk about and seek to, to answer the question of how could God allow or, or even will something bad to take place. And we're not going to get into that too much today, but let me simply say this. We often think that God is untouched by evil, but it is simply not the truth. We think that our difficult life experiences are, are not perceived by or, or known by God, when in reality, there is nothing in this world that you can experience that is worse than what God has experienced. Here's an example for you. A person might would say, you know what? I have been wronged by people who said that they loved me. Do you know that God's been there? Do you know that God's been there? People might would say, I've lost loved ones who were close to me. You've probably been there at some point, right? You've lost a loved one, someone who is very close to you. But God's been there. You might would say, I've, I've experienced unspeakable heartache 
God's been there. There is nothing that you can experience in this life that is worse than what God has experienced. But yet, God has the ability to take this miserable circumstance that you are in and turn it into something that can bring Him glory. And folks, that is what it's all about. It's about God receiving glory. God's plan included a um, cruel, honestly, seemingly senseless act in which His very Son is killed. But in that plan, He's looking out for His glory, He's looking out for our good. And folks, I'm thankful he did. I'm thankful that he chose to send Jesus to die in my place. But I'm also really super thankful because I know that God's plan did not end with the crucifixion. Did it? You're in John chapter 19. Take your Bible and just flip one page. You may not even have to flip a page. Over to John 20. John 20. Let's read about what takes place just three days after the crucifixion. Starting in verse 1, John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus uh, loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Sounds like typical Peter, right? Hey, I'm not scared. I'll go. So he goes in. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Folks, what an incredible event this is. The greatest victory in all of history that brings hope, it brings strength, it brings power, follows the greatest injustice in all of history. This week I asked myself this question. If the crucifixion had happened, but the resurrection didn't, then what would have been the result? If the crucifixion happened, but the resurrection didn't, then what would have been the result? And I wrote out four responses. I know I'm sure there's more, but these are four responses that I thought of and, and, and wrote out. If the resurrection didn't happen, then first of all, we would be trapped in the defeat of sin. 
We would be trapped in the defeat of sin because that's exactly what sin brings. It brings defeat. We cannot have life. We cannot escape um, the defeat of sin except for the resurrection. Secondly, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Satan would have won. What Satan began by defying the Father in pride back before even the creation of this earth, what he began then and carried through all the way would have honestly not been stopped. Jesus would have been killed. It seems like if that would have happened, Satan would have won the victory. But when the resurrection did happen, Satan is defeated. We'll talk more about that here in just a second. If the resurrection didn't happen, then number three, God's plan would have been cruel. Think about this. What father in his right mind would send his son to earth to live the way he sent Jesus and to die the kind of death that Jesus died if there wasn't something else coming later? That would have been cruel. Number four, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we have hope for the passing things of this world only. I have hope that when I go home today and eat lunch, I'm going to have lunch on the table. I have hope that my boys will, um, will behave properly this next week, right? I have hope that when I go fishing next week, I'm going to catch some fish. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we have hope for the passing things of this world only. But the resurrection did happen. And because the resurrection did happen, we know that as believers, our bondage to sin is gone. We still sin sometimes, but we're not in bondage to it like we were before. Secondly, because the resurrection did happen, Satan will be defeated. Now, Satan is still alive and well. He is still the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He is now even the one that is roaming the earth, looking for whom he may devour. But there is coming a day, and actually we're going to dedicate a Sunday to this in December, where we celebrate the fact that Satan will be defeated somewhere down the road. We've been talking all year long about how much of a hold Satan has on this earth. We're going to celebrate someday his defeat. Number three, God's plan is good and it is righteous. Because of the resurrection, we know that to be true. God's plan is good. It is righteous. It is for his glory and ultimately for our good. And then number four, we have hope that has no expiration date. We have hope that has no expiration date. That doesn't mean that just like your milk, your hope is going to end next week. It's going to go bad. No. Our hope as believers is for eternity. This morning we sang a new song that was entitled Lamb of God. We're just going to sing that song again here in a few moments. I'm going to ask Pastor Nate to come on up and prepare for that. But here's some of the lyrics to that song. You came from heaven's throne, acquainted with our sorrow, to trade the debt we owed, your suffering for our freedom. The Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death you died. I am raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. As we sing that song in just a moment, I want to challenge you to think about what we've talked about this morning. You think specifically about at the beginning of the service, I shared with you that story from Pastor Steve Gaines. Think about the fact that Jesus has gone before us that he does have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Think about the fact that he has turned that light on. So there's no question for us what death is going to be like. Dwell on the fact that Jesus died, not just that he died, but dwell on the fact, the facts of why he died. 
Folks, I want to challenge you to, as we sing this song, think about, dwell in the victory of the resurrection. We have hope that has no expiration date. We know without a doubt that Satan will be defeated. Our bondage to sin is gone, and we know that God's plan is good and it is righteous.